Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to the Burning Books podcast where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today we're continuing on the first season of Pods. The season is called To Trilogy or Not to Trilogy, and we'll look at works that form parts of trilogies by Ford Maddox Ford, Pat Barker, Elena Ferrante, Richard Ford, which we did last week, Josip Novakovich, and Roddy Doyle. Unlike the other trilogies in this season, I've cheated a bit in this case. I've already read the first book in Amitav Ghosh's Ibis trilogy, which was called Sea of Poppies. Today, we'll be looking at part two of that trilogy, which is called River of Smoke. Poppies, smoke, it must be opium. And it is. River of Smoke was published in 2011. For years, the name Amitav Ghosh conjured up one title to me, The Calcutta Chromosome. What a name for a book. The book itself didn't entirely live up to my expectations. The parts about malaria were fascinating. The sci-fi bits in between... I don't like sci-fi, so what can I say? The book won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and had I known that before reading it, maybe I wouldn't have read it in the first place. But I did, and like I said, the historical aspects of the novel, the story about the Nobel Prize winner Ronald Ross's encounters with this hugely destructive, rampantly infectious disease, were fascinating. So when Sea of Poppies came along, and I knew it was a book entirely set in the past, with no aspect of the story touching on transnational corporations granting immortality in the future, I was interested. Sea of Poppies is a strange book, was a strange book for me in any case, in that I can't say I loved it, but I do remember aspects of it extraordinarily vividly. For such a mannered, and perhaps for that reason, seemingly mild-mannered author as Amitav Ghosh, he has a strong ability to imagine and express brutality. Sea of Poppies is set in the late 1830s and is centered around the harvesting of poppies and dealing of opium from the terribly impoverished and still terribly impoverished Indian state of Bihar to the untouchably rich estates of Calcutta. The cast of characters is broad, from Diti, the extraordinarily unfortunate poppy harvester, to Babu Nob Kissen, yes, you heard that correctly, and Benjamin Burnham, great profiteers of this illicit trade, as well as to the botanists, landowners, seafarers, and everyone else. Panoramic would be the word for this book, all making for one problem, which I'll leave it to Joseph II to describe. Too many notes. That's from the movie Amadeus, and the entire exchange is right on with regards to the Ghosh novel, so let's play a bit more. Too many notes. I don't understand. There are just as many notes, Majesty, as are required, neither more nor less. Well, my dear fellow, there, there are, in fact, only so many notes the ear can hear in the course of an evening. Too many notes. A novel that boasts, yes, boasts, I'm saying it boasts, a bibliography. What are the priorities here? I know that including a biography was in vogue at the time that Sea of Poppies was published. The Enchantress of Florence by Salman Rushdie also had one. But please, post it on your website if you need to show us which books you read. This is a novel. Fiction. And this bibliography adds nothing in terms of assurance or authority to the fiction that you've written. In fact, Ghosh's devotion to the correct lingo and jargon of the period, and especially to the terms used for boats and boating, can make this book a real challenge. 
Laskars, Bosons, Duftars, Dubasas, Punkas, Punkawalas, Sarangs, Gomustas, and not to mention bits of Bengali thrown in for spice. Often it felt like too much. At times it was like reading a poorly translated novel, something that was so intent on getting each word right that it lost the gist of the sentence or paragraph. And yet, I kept reading it. And this is a testimony to the excellent story that Ghosh set up, and to the fascinating setting as well. I've long loved books set in India, and especially during the Raj, when so many factors come into play. And also, I rarely give up on books, unless they're written by Orhan Pamuk. So Sea of Poppies was trying, but some part of it was also deeply rewarding. Maybe it was the sense of a job well done. I sweat, but it's worth it. Hardly a recommendation for the next volume in the trilogy, but that cover. I can say right away that while River of Smoke is stylistically similar to Sea of Poppies, there are fewer notes. Ghosh still loves his 19th century dictionary of knobhead terminology, but in the second volume, it is fragrant, not suffocating. A compliment, not the main dish. It goes down easily and all in all comes across as more interesting than baffling. That's evident from page one. The story begins by returning to Diti, the woman who is harvesting the poppy fields. Only now, thanks to a ride on the Ibis, she has found herself in Mauritius. It's decades from the present, in quotation marks, of the story, which was the late 1830s. In this glimpse of the future, Diti, instead of being an indentured servant like the last time we saw her, is the matriarch of the family, or fami, as they say in Mauritius, F-A-M-I. Maybe because we're dealing in a more familiar French dialect, not a completely foreign Bengali language, I found the opening chapter's use of native dialogue, famille, atab, étranger, kisa, écouté, all spelled out phonetically. I found it enchanting rather than disorienting. That first chapter goes back over the first volume of the trilogy, focusing on what becomes of the passengers on the boat, the Ibis. While some of the crew eventually land in Mauritius, a contingent made its way east before itself splitting up once again. Diti is one of those who land in Mauritius. The remainder of River of Smoke, however, follows those who went east to China, specifically to the fledgling town of Singapore, the sleepy island of Hong Kong, and the burgeoning metropolises of Macau and, especially, Canton. Canton, that's modern Gangzhou. Today, Gangzhou is the Chinese response to Hong Kong. Back when Gangzhou was Canton, there was no Hong Kong to speak of. It, Canton, was the big city. It was a harbor at the mouth of the Pearl River, the first port of an enormous network of trade between East and West, and it is at the heart of Gauche's novel. The city itself was divided into parts. There was the Chinese section, inaccessible to foreigners except by special permission, and then there's Funky Town. Yes, that's what it's called, F-A-N-Q-U-I Town. Eventually your head gets used to it and it sounds moderately less ridiculous. One of the things about this three-street outpost, Funky Town, is that it's a multinational haven. Everyone from the Danes to the Portuguese, Armenians and French, Americans and English, have headquarters on the main road. Indians had first landed in Canton hundreds of years previous, just as they had made their way to Africa centuries before European colonialism. And another thing about Funky Town, it's men only. The prohibition against women, I guess, was about preventing families from establishing themselves there. So the men that populate this town start a kind of second life. In fact, second lives, second names, and second identities proliferate through the story. 
Here, for example, we have a description of the two lives of Bahram Modi, a Parsi trader from Bombay who is a central character in the Canton opium trade. In Canton, stripped of the multiple wrappings of home, family, community, obligation, and decorum, Bahram had experienced the emergence of a new persona, one that had been previously dormant within him. He had become Barry Modi, a man who is confident, forceful, gregarious, hospitable, boisterous, and enormously successful. But when he made the journey back to Bombay, this other self would go back into its wrappings. Barry would become Bahram again, a quietly devoted husband living uncomplainingly with the constraints of a large joint family. Yet it was not as if any one aspect of himself were more true or authentic than the other. Both these parts of his life were equally important and necessary to Bahram, and there was little about either that he would have wanted to change. The main drama of the story surrounds that trade. What happens, in an operational sense, is that these men from all over the world dock their massive, opium-laden cargo ships just beyond Canton and the mouth of the Pearl River. And from there, so-called fast crab boats, which are commanded by locals, take the cargo, the opium, up the Pearl River, pay off customs officers as they go, and distribute the drugs through the mainland. The extraordinarily lucrative opium trade accounted for a massive amount of the British Empire's trade income, and was a key part of the East India Company's ability to do business and control its colonies. China, which had once engaged in what was effectively a free trade agreement with Britain and other countries, exporting its tea and silk to the West, had long wanted to ban the import of opium, but the money surrounding the trade was too great to resist. Now it was in a kind of limbo, officially denouncing the drug, but unofficially allowing it to be disseminated in any case. One of the best aspects of River of Smoke is when Ghosh writes about the effects of smoking opium from inside and out, user and observer. As a reader, you can fully perceive its power. It takes everything away and replaces the world as it is with the world as you want it to be. But in that world, you don't eat, you don't work, you cease to care about yourself, and you physically waste away. All the energy goes into securing the next hit. Nothing matters except opium. At the beginning of the novel, you have a nation where tens of millions have succumbed to this kind of addiction, and they're wasting away. Not lost in this is the fact that the drug has been banned in all the countries that are exporting it to China. Then something changes. The emperor gets serious about banning opium in China and appoints a notoriously uncorruptible commissioner to take charge in Canton. The commissioner's mandate is to stamp out the opium trade. His name is Lin Zhezhu. Commissioner Lin Zhezhu arrives on the scene and, in a word, the merchants are screwed. Opium trading is an institution. How the merchants respond and how those responses reverberate to the Chinese co-merchants, company dependents, family at home, and so on, constitutes the climax of the book. For the reader of River of Smoke, the excitement of this novel comes from different places. One is seeing what this part of the world looked like before its modern incarnations. Here, for example, is a description of Bahram Modi's preference for the town of Malacca in modern-day Malaysia. For many years, Bahram had regarded the fledgling township of Singapore as a jungly joke. 
In the old days, when sailing through the straits, Bahram had made a point of stopping not at Singapore, but at Malacca, which was one of his favorite cities. He liked the location, the severe Dutch buildings, the Chinese temples, the whitewashed Portuguese church, the arid souk, and the galleys where the long-settled Gujarati families lived. And food lover that he was, he had also developed a great partiality for the banquets that were served in the houses of the city's Paranakan merchants. In those days, Singapore was just one of many forested islands clogging the tip of the straits. On its southern side, at the mouth of the river, there was a small Malay kampung. Ships would sometimes drop anchor nearby and send their longboats over for fresh water and provisions. But the island's jungles were notorious for their tigers, crocodiles, and venomous snakes. No one lingered any longer than was necessary. Another pleasure of reading this book is seeing how diverse and fluid the world was in the middle of the 19th century. We think of globalization as a late 20th century phenomenon, but by a number of measures, international trade in the middle of the 19th century comprised a greater part of the world economy than today. Here is what that diverse and fluid world looked like in the 19th century. It's an introduction to one of Byram's close associates, Zadig Karabedian, a cosmopolitan if there ever was one. Zadig Karabedian was one of Bahram's few true intimates. They had met 23 years before in Canton. Zadig was a watchmaker by trade and traveled often to various ports in the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea to sell clocks, watches, music boxes, and other mechanical devices. Known collectively as sing-songs, these articles were in great demand in Canton. Although Zadig was Armenian by origin, his family had been settled for centuries in Egypt, where they lived in the old Christian and Jewish quarter of Cairo. Legend had it that one of Zadig's ancestors had been sold to the Sultan of Egypt as a boy. After rising in the Mameluk rants, he had arranged to bring some of his relatives to Cairo, where they had prospered as craftsmen, tax collectors, and businessmen. Since then, they had developed close business connections with Aden, Basra, Colombo, Bombay, and several ports in the Far East, including Canton. Zadig, even more than other members of his clan, was an inveterate traveler and was fluent in many languages, including Hindustani. He had a great talent also for something that Bahram liked to call Kabar Dari, keeping up with the news, and it was partly because of this that their paths had crossed in Canton. Free mobility is a consequence of free trade, and free trade at base is the major subject of this novel, River of Smoke, and of the trilogy. We're talking about free trade in all its colors, from the way it opened up the world to the way it condemned many of those who lived within it. Even though many of the thoughts and even dialogues in River of Smoke are taken directly, in some cases verbatim, from the 1830s, today's readers will be familiar with the philosophy that only values that which can be measured, preferably in dollars and cents. Here's how Benjamin Burnham, a trader out of Calcutta, responds to Lin Zhezhu's threats to close the borders. Let us be clear about what we have just heard, he said calmly. An open threat has been issued against us. Our lives, our property, our liberty are in jeopardy. Yet the only offense cited against us is that we have obeyed the laws of free trade. And it is no more possible for us to be heedless of these laws than to disregard the forces of nature or disobey God's commandments. 
At this, Mr. King's voice rose in scorn. Oh, shame on you! Who call yourself a Christian? Do you not see that it is the grossest idolatry to speak of the market as though it were the rival of God? You heard that correctly. Here we have free trade as theology. And the only difference between then and now is that there's no longer a God ruling over trade. Today, trade is at the top of the pyramid. Finally, also just like today, free trade in the 1830s was a one-sided affair. Those with power protected their own markets. Those without power learned what a terrible thing freedom can be. That's how opium is illegal in England, but forced upon a captive Chinese market, despite Chinese law. Lin Zhezhu's mission is to test Chinese power against the imperial powers from the West and to try to make free trade fairer. He has home field advantage, and for a while, things look grim for Bahram Modi and his fellow merchants, as well as the Chinese co-merchants who collude with them. But this only sets up the field for the opium wars. And we can see even today who holds the balance of wealth and power between East and West, for the moment, in any case. River of Smoke can, at times, run off a string of clumsy sentences. Fitcher could not help thinking that this was how an explorer might feel on beholding a ruined temple in the jungle, except that the irony in this instance was that the force that was devouring the temple was precisely the aspect of nature that was enshrined within it. Five that's in one sentence. This is the kind of thing that can send me over the edge. How many people were asleep at the switch for the above examples, not to mention there are many other associates and friends, and yet I kept reading this book. I was bothered, but I got over it. Was it the plot that did it? The narrative voice? The characters? I give the author great credit. He manages an extraordinarily varied cast of high and low-minded types. Bandits, thugs, hypocrites, stoics, men, women, children, military, civilian, pragmatic, dogmatic. The reader is attached to nearly everyone, including those that at first repel us. What kept me hooked, however, was learning. Learning about this different and strange time and place, how business was conducted then, how forces that today seem directly opposed were once closely cooperative, and vice versa. There's nothing representing that better than a subplot about botanical trading. Two of the characters in River of Smoke are on the trail of a number of rare flora species from China that they want to transplant to England in the recently established Kew Gardens. Many of those species are what we would today consider common, but in order for them to have been established as common, they once needed to travel three oceans in precarious conditions. Here is that list. Chrysanthemums, peonies, tiger lilies, wisteria, rhododendrons, azaleas, asters, gardenias, begonias, camellias, hydrangeas, primroses, heavenly bamboo, a juniper, a cypress, climbing tea roses, and roses that flower many times over, these and many more. It was learning about the opium trade that ultimately brought me through Sea of Poppies. It's another leg of this trade and all that surrounds it that carried me through River of Smoke. It's what makes this book, just like its predecessor, unforgettable. And it also perhaps makes that bibliography understandable. He wanted to show where all this learning came from. At the same time, though, I have to admit, I like the author to keep his magician's hat on. I prefer he doesn't reveal his secrets. So on the question of whether to trilogy or not to trilogy, this is an easy one. Having gotten two-thirds of the way there, I can't wait for number three. Thank you for listening. 
Next up on Burning Books will be a review of My Brilliant Friend, the first installment of Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spell the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. On Twitter, there's at Burning Books Pod, and if you're on Facebook, I can be reached at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music, to Peter Cox, executive producer of the program, and as always, go Jays. Bye.